No slides? All right, that's fine. And then we've got holy, holy, holy after the sermon. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus, have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Uh, if, you, uh, if you were here last week, you know we're working through a series on prayer. It's actually a series on the Lord's Prayer. And last week we covered our Father who art in heaven. And this week we're looking at Hallowed Be Your Name. Hallowed Be Your Name. And you can see that from the title of the sermon. Now, the concept of the sermon series is that this prayer, or in fact any prayer, is about being made and being, being unmade and remade through prayer. And we're looking at Jesus' model of prayer, but we're looking at a number of texts which sort of elucidate that principle. And so today we're looking at this very famous text that occurs just after the triumphal entrance, which we'll look at, of course, the week before Easter. And Jesus has gone into the temple and he's cleared the temple. And then you have this period where he's healing the lame uh, the, and the blind. And we get, last week, if you were here, you know that we looked at God the Father. But this, uh, this passage, we don't see Jesus or God represented through Jesus in that sort of like fatherly, gentle image. Uh, this is not a picture of someone that seems gentle or relaxed. It sounds someone who seems pretty agitated, you might say. And so we're getting to the realize that maybe Jesus isn't everything that we may presume him to be through our culture or our upbringing or whatever, whatever sort of like cultural illusions we may have. That, that We need to really find out who Jesus is. And, and when we get into a relationship, I don't know about you, but when I first started dating Patty, I tried to, I was somewhat infatuated with her, and I tried to make her fall in love with me. Of course, you do that, right? And I, I began to believe that she loved me because I'd listen intently to everything she would say, even when she said things that I didn't necessarily agree with. You know, and I would drive 100 miles to see her, right? Like, whatever it would take, you know, from the upper north, uh, from the upper east side to the lower west side, whatever it would take in New York on the subway system to get there to see her, I would do that. And I would write beautiful poems while I was at work uh, <laughs> to sort of impress her or these long-winded, flowery emails. And, you know, I would get dressed up and look really spiffy when we'd, we'd go out. Now, we've been married 20 years and our eldest son is 
going to be turning 19 in November. And I have to say that not every conversation we've ever had has been easy. And I can't say that I've always listened perfectly. can't say I've always had the time to drive 100 miles to do something for her. You know, sometimes I have to earn a living. I've got my own stress. Life is going on. And I certainly do not have time at work to write poetry or flower emails like I used to. And she will definitely confirm with you that I do not dress up and look spiffy all the time, particularly around the house. So in a sense, we've gone from an infatuation where I'm presenting myself well and I believe she loves me because to a deeper relationship because we spent time together where I actually believe she loves me despite some of these things. And so the sweetness comes when you learn to listen and hear and delight, to know that you are known and to know. So you know them and they know that they love you and that they like you or love you anyway. And so it is, in a sense, with God. That doesn't come overnight. To know and be known and to respond to that in ways which are meaningful, which are affectionate, which are connected, which are real, means that we, to love despite, to be loved despite who you are, means that we need to spend time with God. We've got to get to know God. And there's no better way of doing that than prayer of Scripture or meditative praying. Or in other words, that's the best way to be unmade and remade, to understand effectively who God is. And so we're going to look through this series at a step of prayer, and we're going to do those steps of prayer, that scripture reading prayer, as we do the sermon. So we're going to recommend this model to you as a prayer model of scripture, and we're going to preach according to that model. And the model is, asking three questions of the scripture in meditative prayer. Who is God? Who am I? And how should I respond? And asking those questions in that order as we sit and reflect on scripture. Who is God? Who am I? And how should I respond? And in one sense, these are the fundamental principles of being a Christian, of the Christian life, or perhaps more specifically, the Christian relationship. Constantly asking that question, who are you really, God? And who am I really, God? And how should I respond? So today we're looking at hallowed be his name. Hallowed be his name. From this text, this famous text at the, the temple where Jesus is coming after the triumphal effort and overturned the tables and has started healing the blind and the lame. We're going to ask this question, who is God? Hallowed be his name. His name. Who am I? I'm guessing I'm supposed to be the hallower. And how should I respond? So who is God? Who am I? And how should I respond? So who is God? Now we see in verse 12 that he overturns the tables of the temple, right? And then in verse 14, he heals the blind and the lame. And as we said last week, he was our father in heaven. This week... He makes a radical claim. He's actually claiming ownership of the temple. Let me read this. It's not just he went in and turned over a few tables because he lost his temper. My house will be called a house of prayer. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and responds 
my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it, you are making my house a den of robbers. Straight away we're seeing godly authority here. That temple, of course, belongs to God. He's claiming, in a sense, to be God. That's an incredibly authoritative claim to be making. My house. And then the very next thing he does is heal the blind and the lame. Now, a lot of times we have a tendency, especially in the modern, postmodern age, to downplay miracles, to say, ah, oh, who knows what that was. The reality is the miracles were as profoundly out of the ordinary then as they are today, right? And we're supposed to be, just as they were, profoundly shaken by seeing these things. You see, miracles are not just some random thing that happened. Miracles are foretastes and signposts. Because God came to proclaim the coming kingdom of God. And so the miracle is a foretaste of the coming kingdom. It's giving us a taste of what the healing or the corrective or the restoration will look like in the coming kingdom. The raising of Lazarus, the ending of blindness, the ending of lameness, the ending of leprosy, of social outcasts. All of those things are foretastes of the coming kingdom. Signpost to Christ. Who is bringing about that kingdom? The Messiah, the coming king. These are signposts to Christ himself. So these, these miracles that he's doing are new claims to authority, to have in effect creation authority, to override the degraded, broken creation and fix it. That is not a small, inconsequential thing that you have to work out. It was a profound miracle, and it was as profound then as we should see it as being today. So he's claiming two things, deity authority, deity or godly authority over the temple, and even bigger than that, authority over all of creation. The passage is following the triumphal entrance where the kids are singing that song, Hosanna, which is just adoration and praise to the son of David, to the Messiah, to the coming king. They're saying God is different he must be treated as different. He is uniquely set apart. He needs to be treated as if he's holy. He needs to be recognized as if he is holy. In other words, he needs to be hallowed. Hallowed be your name. Now, the old English word hallowed means treated as sacred, holy or separate. Hallowed be thy name is an exclusive statement. You don't say that to multiple different things. Well, I hallow this and I hallow that. No, you only get to hallow one thing. You can't set apart multiple things. I got certain clothes once upon a time when I was young and people used to dress up to go to church. I used to have separate clothes that would be used. I still have a suit, which I wear at weddings and funerals. I don't do my woodworking in that suit. I set it apart. It, it's not for those things. And you can't set all your clothes apart or they all become clothes that you wear for everything. You set apart as an exclusive statement. We hallow one thing and one thing only. And so we hallow God. We treat him as holy. We set, we set him apart. We recognize him as holy. Now, God's name, and therefore God himself, is to be the most uniquely valued. That's what we mean when we say that in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. May you be the most uniquely valued, the set apart, the priority that determines all other priorities. That exclusive statement at the very beginning. Hallowed be your name. 
And here we see the juxtaposition, right? The juxtaposition, our Father who art in heaven, that deep, intimate, connected, affectionate term with hallowed be your name, that transcendent, that deity or God authority, that creation authority, that set-apart holy otherness come together. They don't really feel like they fit together, but that's the juxtaposition of this first two lines of the prayers, the incredibly personal and intimate with the amazingly transcendent and majestic and holy coming together. And it's not one or the other, and it can never be one or the other. You cannot pray to him as an intimate, imminent father unless you also value and worship him as a transcendent Lord. If you do that, you're in a place of heresy or blasphemy. So I'm going to say that again. You cannot pray to him as an intimate, imminent father unless you're also valuing him and worshipping him as a transcendent Lord. Otherwise, it's a type of heresy or blasphemy. Mature Christian prayer is having the boldness to walk into the temple of the sovereign God as if you are walking into your parents' living room and to hallow him above everything else. Now, you wouldn't do that with your own parents. You wouldn't and you shouldn't because they're just human. They don't deserve and shouldn't be set apart like God is set apart, right? Now, we're going to unpack this idea over the next few points. But who is God? is the one and exclusive being who should be hallowed. Yes, he is our father. We learned that last night. But he is also the creator authority, the Lord who has all authority on heaven and earth. So who am I? Well, there's good news and bad news about this. The good news is, luckily or not, there are not two types of people. There are not those that hallow and those who don't hallow. We're all hallowers. We were designed and created to hallow. That's the good news. We are all hallowers. We all practice setting things apart and praising them with our time and our money and giving them meaning. We all do that with things in our life. So that's the good news. Hallowing is actually not a difficult activity. It's a very human and normal activity to do. The problem is, though, the bad news is, it's not God that we hallow. The question we need to ask is, yes, I'm a hallower. Who am I? I'm a hallower. But a hallower of what? After the triumphal entrance, Hosanna, the son of David, the Messiah, the king of kings, is what they called out when he was walking in at the triumphal entrance. That's the same Thing that's being called out by the children here in this passage. But the people standing around are the ones that were silent, or even worse, crying out, crucify him, crucify him, a week later. Messiah, Savior, Son of God, King of Kings, crucify him. I want nothing to do with him a week later. Now, I don't know about you, but that's my life. I hallow today, and I deny tomorrow. Now, I may not deny it with my words, but I certainly deny it with my action and my choices, my priorities, what I set apart, what I commit my, my time and my money and my meaning to. Am I someone who hallows 
all the time? Absolutely not. I relate to this crowd, this fickle crowd. I wish I were, but I am not. So in our passage, we see two groups of hallowers. And let me read you 14 and 15. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So the two groups here of hallowers are the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the children. Now the chief priests and the, children and the teachers of the law, they're hallowing something else. They're probably... We don't know because it doesn't go into a lot of detail, but we do know that the chief priests and the teachers of the law felt threatened by Jesus, that they were afraid that his authority would usurp their authority, that he would get the attention, that he would overturn the cultural order of worship that they'd set up. So they, in a sense, were hallowing their reputations, hallowing the cultural norms, hallowing, hallowing the things which put them in the place at the top of the heap. They were fearful and afraid of his authority. Now the children, on the other hand, they were hallowing Christ for who he was. The Messiah, the coming king, the son of David. So we see that juxtaposition there, right? Interestingly enough, it goes so well. We often think that the juxtaposition is hard. Father, hallowing. But here we see it's the children who hallow. Those who recognize their, dep their dependence. Those who recognize their need to submit find it so much easier to hallow. So if we look at the church, we can see there's the outsider or the new one who hasn't come in yet. And we often say, if only they knew the truth. I'm sure if they knew the truth, they would believe. And that's not always true. Many people reject the gospel because they do understand the implications, right? Only God can be hallowed, and they don't want to reprioritize their lives. And we should neither water this down nor demand change before encounter. And this is a tough balance for a church, but it's really important to understand. We talked about that long relationship where you learn and you grow and you adapt and you show affection. When someone walks into this church or any other church, chances are they don't know God very well. And so the first thing we shouldn't do is run up and say, let me tell you about all the rules that God has and you need to follow all of those rules. And if you don't, then you can't be in this place. But on the same time, what we can't do is not tell them that you are walking on a lifetime journey of reprioritizing your life. A lifetime journey of encounter and change. Encounter and change. Encounter and change. Now, often in the evangelical church, we talk about sexual behavior, you know, sort of an obsession of the evangelical community, and it's important. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about uh, sexual behavior, but let's also think about the other things. Before we start casting stones at people that walk through the door, perhaps we should ask ourselves how we're doing in terms of reprioritizing our finances or our time or our communal burden bearing, bearing. It requires sacrifice. It requires priority change. And you know what? You don't get there. You don't become a Christian, born again. Oh, thank goodness, all my priorities have changed. It's a process that lasts a lifetime. 
You know, when you first become a Christian, it's sort of like this, right? I've got my kingdom, and it's doing fine. And there's the kingdom of God. So I really, sh- I hear these messages. I should do something to build the kingdom of God. I know, I'll add this in. Kingdom building activity, fantastic. Whew, I'm a little burdened now. But I can do a little bit more kingdom building because I'm a little bit more mature as a, ki- a Christian. I'll add another piece in. Oh my gosh, I can almost handle this but I think I need to be a little bit more mature as a Christian. I'll take another step forward, and I'm starting to get over. And the problem is I'm not jettisoning the junk. I'm trying to build two kingdoms at once. I'm not giving up building my own kingdom in order to build God's kingdom. See, the hard thing is usually not participating in the work of building God's kingdom. The problem is jettisoning the junk, moving away from those things that we don't want to give up, those things which are hard. Which kingdom? Both, until I'm overwhelmed and exhausted, then which kingdom? Are the thorns going to crowd out the shoots? Are they going to stunt the growth? Or am I going to do the hard work of pruning and sacrificing and, and getting rid of the dross in my life? So that's those that are coming in, right? As they come in, we need to be honest with them. We also need to give them space. We need to encourage encounter. Help Holy Spirit transformation happen. Not our cultural norming to happen, but Holy Spirit transformation to happen. What about inside the church? We really, really need to hold the juxtaposition of father and king, of father and deity and creation authority together. We can't separate them. It's not one or the other. (coughs) If we choose to see God as all-powerful, almighty, sovereign God, we can have a tendency to smirk at those who talk about God as a lover. We dismiss them as soft and emotion, as theological lightweights. We, guide, we admire God ourselves from afar, and we do not and we cannot experience the intimacy of God because in our hearts we're a little bit of afraid of him. We're actually afraid that he's going to reveal stuff about us that we don't like. And that fear eventually turns into resentment. You know, we go around saying, I know the king, I'm holy. You often walk around with false humility, almost spiritually name-dropping. And, but this is a posture that's marked by contempt and judgment and, superi- and spiritual superiority. Or sometimes we choose the other option, right? We go with the dad model of God. A dad without respect. We make God the Gentile, the gentle, intimate God who's always there to listen, but we close our eyes to his transcendence and his majesty and his authority. God becomes our therapist. Affection without respect. We feel free to reject his commands the way we feel free to reject the advice of our therapist. As people, being a therapist, I can say this, so often do. We need to see God as Holy Father, Father to be hallowed, intimate and transcendent, both together. So how do I respond to that? Well, 
We need to listen. We need to listen. We need to get to know. This is not an overnight thing. So many people, they want the instant gratification spiritual pill. Make me mature. Get me there overnight. I don't want to do the, the long walk of discipleship. It takes time. We need to listen to Scripture. We need to spend time developing our affections for God. So let's practice some listening. In this text that we read, Jesus is not throwing a temper tantrum. We already said that at the temple by only turning the tables. Nor is he taking a break to de from declaring his authority by healing the blind and the lame. Both of those acts are authority statements. One is authority over the whole of worship, saying, I am God. The other is authority over creation, saying, I am creator and sustainer. Now, we said that already, but what you may not know is that this was taking place in the courts of the Gentiles which was the place where the foreigner, the outsider, the marginalized or the fringe dweller was supposed to come and worship and experience. The one that walked in and didn't really fully understand it all or didn't completely get it or wasn't 100% sure where they were at, but there was a safe place. Right? They hadn't yet decided to get circumcised. It takes encounter time, encounter time to change, right? So the cultural and religious community that was in charge had turned that space into a marketplace, a den of thieves, something for the religious culture to go and buy sacrifices. So Jesus was not primarily mad because they were charging too much for the pigeons. That wasn't what was upsetting him. They had stolen the worship place of the foreigner, the outsider, the marginalized, the fringe dweller. Their cultural convenience was prioritized over the worship encounter of others. The new, the exploring, the God-seeker. Literally, that's the term they use, the God-seeker, the Gentile. The culturally uncircumcised need a place to worship, a place to encounter. And I would argue that you should be suspicious of churches without fringe dwellers. And let me ask you this, are we a church without fringe dwellers? Culturally, where is our court for the Gentiles? Now, the blind and the lame came into the temple. Now, at that time, they were not welcome because they were a sign of something wrong. Something had gone askew, amiss. They were the sort of like, let's hide the problem cases because this really doesn't do glory to God. Something's gone wrong here. And in a sense, Jesus was directly addressing that when the people asked him, why are there people born lame and blind? And he says, so that the glory of God can be revealed. Because the glory of God was not being revealed in the temple because those people were not permitted in. And here they are running into the temple to be healed. A foretaste of the coming kingdom and a signpost about his kingdom authority. But in the temple, this messy, untidy, broken people were typically unwelcome. In the temple, culture, cultural religion was, was offended. It was indignant. They were afraid. We can't let the messy, broken people in. What will happen? That's why so many people prefer AA to church. Because the messy and the broken are welcome at AA, but they're not so welcome in the church. 
So let's ask the question again. If we're going to do meditative prayer here, what makes you indignant? What makes me indignant? What makes us indignant? Let's personalize it. I say you to you, but I mean me to me. What makes you indignant and why? Are you looking at it through God's eyes? Do you know how God would even look at these situations? Are your prayers listening prayers? I'm going to be honest with you. Most prayers tend to fall in the category of asking God to hallow what we want to hallow. We don't actually hallow God. We say, God, we'd like you to hallow these things too. Most of our supplications are focused on the things we want. Career or kids or health or finance or romance. And I don't know about you, but I am liable to hallow, to hallow these things. And so if I'm not careful, my well-being intentional prayers run, will run counter to the instruction of Christ who taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, I hallow those things and these people before him. And I tell myself I must be spiritual because I'm praying, but in my prayer, I'm literally hallowing these things before him. Before him and before him. Now, how ironic. I codify my idolatry through my prayer life. Dad, can I have the car? Dad, can I have some money? Dad, I need a new computer. Now, a lot more can be said about this, and we will say more about this. Give us our daily bread as we forgive. Uh, like, so, so there's room to ask. But the question is, are we hallowing things before God? Are we asking God to hallow the things we hallow? Or are we hallowing God, prioritizing God, and meditating through the desires of our hearts to understand those things we're asking? Which comes first? Now, I'm going to conclude by asking you guys to do an exercise. I'm going to ask you if you feel comfortable to close your eyes and imagine something with me. So just close your eyes. Now, imagine that God isn't just available to comfort us, but is of such beauty and value that he transcends every good thing in our lives and becomes our ultimate good. We're love-struck, enraptured, and we begin to subjectively believe what's already objectively true. If God is my Father, what is there to fear? Certainly not pandemics, or liberals, or conservatives, or immigrants, or debt, or being alone, or any other thing that wants me to cower in fear. All right. Come back to the room. That's the point. That is the point of praying through Scripture meditatively. This is what makes, in fact, the worship of the church 
so different, almost the complete inverse of all other forms of worship. Instead of bringing our offerings, we receive Christ's offering. Instead of sacrificing to our God, our God sacrifices for us. Instead of worshipping something that will consume us, we worship a God who invites us to consume him at the table. If God is hallowed above all else, what thing of ultimate value could be taken from me? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Christian prayer, I'm going to say it again, is having the boldness to walk before God in prayer as if we were walking into our parents' living room. It's having the respect to know that we shouldn't lead with whiny wish lists and yet having the level of comfort to know it's perfectly appropriate to begin with Daddy. The Lord's Prayer invites us to have this kind of audacity and intimacy with God. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, the Christian faith is a lot of things. It is organized, it is structured, it is codified, but ultimately... Father, it is about us in relationship with you. It is about us realizing who you are, us realizing who we are in response to who you are, and working out the implications of that. How do we respond to it? So, Father, we pray. We pray for this discipline of meditative prayer, this desire to get to know and develop affection for, for you, to see through your eyes, to delight in what you delight in, to be your lover, but never losing the reality that you are, you are the Lord that's worthy of being hallowed, that you are the Lord of creation, that you have all authority. Help us to walk that space of Father and hallowed Lord as we sit before you. Not one or the other, but both we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.